Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. You are tuned in live to Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show going live once again. So if you have any questions or comments, do send them along in the comment section on Facebook, on YouTube, wherever you may be watching. We'll try to get to a few as the show progresses. But we do have a lot of content to get through. Some big news coming up today. We've got the rules of the race for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership contest. They are going to decide their leader in September. We don't actually have the full rules out, but the timeline and the entry fee are the big questions that a lot lot of people were keeping an eye peeled for so we'll talk about that a little bit later on also I want to talk to criminal defense lawyer David Amber who's been doing some fantastic work uh, covering the convoy from the legal perspective and actually representing some people involved he's going to be on the show in just about 15 minutes time I think to talk about all that's happening there and also on that note Tamara Leach the Freedom Convoy fundraiser and organizer still behind bars as a judge decides whether to let her go back home to Alberta on bail but he's decided he's going to take his dear sweet time and make a decision come Monday. So she has been, as of I think tomorrow, uh, behind bars for two weeks, which is quite significant for the alleged crime of counseling mischief, which was what they arrested her on. As she said, hold the line on her way to the police car. But before we get to all of that, let's talk about something that you can, can unite us all, which is frustration with CBC, specifically the amount of money that CBC spends, not of its own money, not of its shareholders. I mean, yes, of its shareholders in a way, you and I, but not with the shareholders' consent. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which has been doing some tremendous work on this, launched a petition, I think it was just one week ago, to call on the government to scrap the CBC subsidy to defund CBC. And this has now reached 52,000 signatures in just a week. Tremendous work. Franco Terrazano is the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins me now. Franco, th this is, I, I, I know sometimes getting people to pay attention to taxpayer spending has been challenging. It's why you work around the clock uh, so tirelessly trying to get people to pay attention. But have you ever had something with quite this uptake? Well, we have had some very big petition numbers, but they accumulate over time, right? Like we did have one petition delivery. It was about 200,000 signatures to scrap the governor general's perks, like the uh, lifetime annual expense account former governor generals get. But what's so different about this petition, 52,000 signatures in a week. So Andrew, to me, that really shows a, a strong signal that there's many Canadian taxpayers that are deeply, deeply concerned, but with the amount of money that the government that the government is sending to the CBC every year, and also that six hundred million dollar media bailout. Yeah, the media bailout is a big one as well, and, and we've talked about it at great length at True North because in a lot of ways it raises questions that a lot of people have as to whether reporters are even fairly covering that because their livelihoods, their uh, businesses' uh, longevity depends on it. But let me ask you, is this to you an, an issue of content? Is it an issue of the fact that we're funding reporting and the fact that we're funding CBC, or is it just about the funding itself rather than the specific content that's being published? 
Well, Andrew, I think there's a lot of people who have a lot of different uh, thoughts when it comes to this matter. But from the Taxpayers Federation, it really boils down to this. We believe that all Canadians should be able to keep their own money and decide which media organizations they want to fund with their own money, right? Taxpayers should not be forced to subsidize certain media organizations. So it really comes down to that. Let taxpayers decide which organizations we want to support. But then also, too, on the other hand, Andrew, as, as you know, uh, it's, it's really not fair for certain news organizations to have to compete with massive government-funded organizations like the CBC, more than a billion dollars every single year, or these other news outlets that are getting some of that $600 million media bailout. So for us, it's all about let Canadians decide which organizations we want to fund with our own money. Yeah, there is a leveling the playing field issue here because all of a sudden, first off, you have to have government deciding what constitutes a media outlet, what constitutes a, a journalism outfit that's eligible for funding, which raises significant questions, even if I'm not aware of, of specific issues where an outlet's applied and, and has been denied. But moreover, you're right. It means that the ones who may not take that, there are a number of outlets, like Blacklock's Reporter is a great example. They are in the parliamentary press gallery. They're an official media outlet, even if they don't go along along with, with sometimes the mainstream media narrative on things, they've said they don't want government funding. Well, all of a sudden, they're at a competitive disadvantage because they have to deal with things without being able to rely on that subsidy. So it almost incentivizes companies taking it because they don't want to be at a disadvantage to their counterparts and their uh, their opponents. Yeah, and, and you know, you touched on this at the beginning of the show, but just that I, I think we all agree that one of the most fundamental pillars of a strong and healthy democracy is an independent press and independence both in practice, but also perception, right? I think there's many journalists out there who, who, who are doing a great job, but you can understand if people perceive that they might have some bias when it's the government who is, is funding their organizations, right? I think that is a very key problem and we're not the first ones to bring up that objection, Right. There's we've we've heard it from other journalists in the past, um, but also too, you talk about how you now have an incentive for organizations to want to collect these tax dollars. Well, what about us struggling taxpayers, federal <laughs> government? Right. Like what about what about us struggling taxpayers? The federal government is already more than a trillion dollars in debt. You break that down per person and that's more than thirty thousand dollars that each Canadian man, woman and child is on the hook for. Right. How high of our tax bill? does it have to get before we actually have a federal government that finds some savings? And Andrew, uh, that $1.4 billion to the CBC, the $600 million media bailout, those are perfect areas to find some savings. One point that I've always raised about CBC, and, I, and this, again, should extend even if you love CBC. I would love nothing more than for people to say, I love CBC so much I'm paying for a subscription like I do for the Globe and Mail or the National Post or donating to True North or taking out a subscription to the Western Standard, whatever the case is. People who like that, we're not saying abolish the CBC. We're saying don't make it reliant on government money. Let it compete like anything else. And even if, even if we're going to have as a society this decision where we believe CBC is important, CBC content's important. Why is it not a public good? Why is its content not free for other people to republish? Why is it competing with private companies for the rights to carry the Olympics, for example, something that companies pay a lot of money for? Why are they trying to elbow out private sector media? That kind of defeats the purpose of CBC, which is to fill a void that they say wouldn't exist in a free market. 
Andrew, so many good points that I want to uh, dissect there. Let's start with this. Uh, even if we, we, we want to call this a public good, even if, right? Does it really need $1.4 billion every <laughs> single year? Really, $1.4 billion every single year. And to your earlier point, you said, hey, we're not, we're not looking to abolish the CDC. Just remove the government funding, right? The taxpayers' money that has been forced to go to this organization. Now, we've been doing a lot of digging through the annual reports just to, just to make sure the numbers are correct. And uh, the last figure that I saw was that the CBC was able to raise about $500 million in non-government revenue. So we're not saying abolish the CBC, just defund the subsidies that the government is giving to the CBC. Now, who knows what would end up happening to the, the non-government revenue? But like I said, the last number that we saw was $500 million, not from the taxpayer. And I think there's an important point there, because I don't think most Canadians, even many who signed that petition of yours, would object to CBC saying, OK, we're going to get rid of the online news section. We're going to get rid of, uh, you know, Little Mosque on the Prairie or whatever the 2022 version of is. We're going to get rid of all of that. We're going to broadcast in northern communities. We're going to broadcast in indigenous languages. We're going to go where there is no private sector alternative. They could probably do that for less than that $500 million you talked about. Yeah, or certainly less than the $1.4 billion <laughs> well, yes. every single year. Like, I have to keep going to this, right? Because even if you do want to make the argument that the government should be funding, I think, okay, like, let's, we can arm wrestle on, over that for about a week, you and I going back and forth. But $1.4 billion every single year, that is, I think that is, is quite unacceptable. And it's not just me, it's not just you. I think that's one of the reasons why we saw 52,000 signatures on the petition in a week. That shows me that there's many Canadians who clearly think that this is an issue and clearly think that this is a big issue. And that petition is at taxpayer.com, correct? Yep, absolutely. Just head over to taxpayer.com, click on the petitions tab, and you'll find it there. Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks very much, good sir. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Before I, I get to my next guest, I, I do want to mention very quickly here, one of the content-related challenges people have with CBC. Again, there's a moral position there on government funding, that CBC should have to compete with other people in the industry, like, and go through all of the market realities. And even if you like CBC, you can support that position. But then you look at some of the coverage they do. This story came out, I think it was this morning, numbers suggest many American protest convoy donors also gave to Trump Republicans. And they were using that list that leaked uh, purportedly of Give, Send, Go donors. So the list that was illegally hacked from Give, Send, Go and published online that has allowed reporters to go through and start doxing anyone who donated, you know, $10 to the Freedom Convoy because they believed in what the truckers were doing and all of that. And CBC has taken that list and they've looked at the top 200 American donors and they found that half of them have names matching to donors of the Republicans and Donald Trump. So the CBC story is 100 Americans donated to Trump and the Freedom Convoy, or 100 people who shared the same name as Trump and Freedom Convoy donors. And I looked at this and I'm like, I, okay, who cares? The fact that 100 people 
out of the 74 million who voted for Donald Trump, even when he lost, he had 74 million people vote for him. The fact that they also voted for the Freedom Convoy doesn't seem newsworthy. But CBC's position on this is that if you were a Trump voter, you're just like a dirty person that doesn't belong in civil society. That's the premise through which they're approaching this. Now, I don't know how many Canadians are Trump supporters or Republican supporters, whatever the case may be. But what I do know is that when CBC is content on really predicating its coverage based on the idea that it is wrong to have a particular political persuasion, perhaps this isn't this grand unifying public broadcaster that we are all rallying behind as they seem to pretend, and certainly as the narrative suggests in them getting so much taxpayer money each year. So all of that is to say I understand why people have frustrations with CBC beyond just the dollar value of it here. But let's talk about the convoy fundraising here. Tamara Leach, who is the lead convoy fundraiser, she was the one that started the GoFundMe. She was the one that was in Ottawa, was yelling out, hold the line, as she was arrested by police. Tamara Leach, after a bail hearing yesterday, has been kept behind bars for at least another five more days. So that'll bring us to Monday when the judge will decide whether or not she should be released on bail. That will be about two and a half weeks, or if I'm being precise here, two weeks and three days since she was first arrested for organizing a protest. She was arrested on the charge of counseling mischief. I've never heard of someone being kept behind bars with the Crown so fervently trying to keep them there, as is happening in the case of Tamara Leach. I want to talk about this and much more about the aftermath of the convoy with criminal lawyer David Amber, who, believe it or not, is not a Simpsons character. On Twitter, you may be mistaken if you thought that, but he has a, a real-life identity and he is uh, sharing it with us today. David, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on the program. You and I talked in a, a Twitter space uh, a couple of weeks back, and I said I wanted to delve into some of these issues with you further. And of course, this issue has changed. But let me just start with the bail question here. When Tamara Leach was first asking for bail, I think it was the day after she was arrested. Actually, yeah, it's two weeks ago today, because I recall the day after was a Friday. And I thought it was bizarre that the judge didn't make the decision right away. And this judge as well, taking five days to review the bail. Is this normal in a criminal proceeding? To a certain extent, Andrew, it is normal. When judges have decisions that are important, I mean, they're all important, but when they're in the national scrutiny, in the national eye, if they deal with something that's a, a complicated legal question, and I appreciate that there are many who feel that this is a, a slam dunk, it's a, you know, a mischief charge, and uh, she should be released. And look, I, I'm a big believer that the first judge got it wrong. Uh, but I, I did also believe at the time that it's a much closer call than people think it is when you apply the rules that apply to bail. And look, the prosecutor who's been arguing the case has been doing a very good job at, at advancing the prosecution's uh, theory of the case. So Justice Bourgeois uh, wanted to wait until I think it was after the holiday Monday uh, the Tuesdays when she released her decision. So that's that's somewhat normal. What happened uh, yesterday, and it was uh, what's called a bail review, which is essentially like an appeal. I won't bog down in the minutia of what it is. It's basically an appeal of, uh, of the first bail ruling to a higher court judge. It's actually, just for those of you who are interested, it's a, it's a Harper appointee judge. Uh, the provincial court judge was appointed by the provincial government, but this is a superior court judge, a former defense lawyer, uh, a very good judge, very open-minded judge, uh, not a pushover one way 
uh, or the other. Uh, so he heard a full day hearing. Basically, the matter went to, to close to six o'clock in the afternoon, uh, in, the, in the evening. And he indicated that he needed some time to uh, reflect on that. Now, I think due to scheduling reasons, he's in other courts and other jurisdictions for the remainder of the week, the Thursday and the Friday. And so the first opportunity after that that he would have to re render a decision would be on the, on the next Monday. So uh, certainly uh, nobody likes the idea that, that you have to wait for justice, especially when you're in custody. But I think that there's nothing nefarious going on behind the scenes. That's just the way everything shook out with the way the bail went all day yesterday. Not being a lawyer, I typically look at the two considerations that seem to come up in, in any bail stories I've covered as being the seriousness of the offense or the alleged offense and also uh, whether the, the person is a flight risk. Now, I, again, I, I'm hoping you can explain what the factors are that go into these decisions, but, but on those two points, we're talking about relatively minor charges here. And also we're talking about a woman who has had her bank accounts frozen previously, doesn't have a lot of money, and isn't vaccinated, so couldn't even if she wanted to get on a plane to flee the country here. So I don't think we're talking about much of a flight risk here. What are the factors at play here that have been justifying keeping her detained, not grant giving, uh, giving her bail, especially when one of her co-organizers, Chris Barber, was given bail by that first judge, uh, Justice Bourgeois? Okay, so Andrew, there are three considerations in bail. Uh, the first, as you indicated, is the flight risk. The second is the substantial likelihood of the repetition of the offense or further offenses. And the third is the reputation of the administration of justice as that's perceived in, in the community. And that normally doesn't play much of a factor into a typical mischief charge, but it actually is playing a large factor here because it's got such a, a high profile because members of the community allegedly were so much affected by what was being framed as a, a blockade, as an occupation. Mm -hmm. So on the first uh, consideration, uh, Justice Bourgeois did not detain uh, Tamara Leach on the first first consideration. The first consideration, I believe the Crown had argued it was a, a factor, but that, that's not been uh, the that's not been the consideration. It's been the second and the third that have been in play in this particular case. And a lot has been said and a lot has been made of Tamara Leach saying the hold the line. I mean, and again, look, I put myself in the shoes of the prosecutor. If I were prosecuting this, I would be making the same point as he did. It's that, the, you know, every, the, the politicians said to go home. The police said to go home. The Emergency Act was uh, invoked. And then uh, as she's being arrested, she says, hold the line one more time. And so the argument that they're making is that she can't be governed by the rule of law. Now, again, I, I believe that the bail judge got it wrong in the first instance. There's a heavy onus in terms of releasing people, uh, particularly those without a prior record. And so um, notwithstanding the fact that that's a concern, the conditions of bail could be fashioned in such a way as to alleviate that. Now in Canada, we don't rely so much on cash bail, although that would have been an option. I know in Quebec, they're a little more uh, interested in doing that than they are in Ontario. Ontario places a big emphasis on sureties that's a person who is willing to step up and sign for the person and be responsible for the person, like their jailer. So they would turn them into police if they weren't uh, following the conditions. Uh, Tamara Leach's first surety was not seen as being suitable, but a, a different surety testified. There was 
a publication ban on the identity of that surety. So I can't really say much more other than there was a different surety that was put forward. Uh, and, and there was a debate held over whether or not that person would be, um, would be appropriate. But moving now to the third consideration, sort of the public's perception of the administration of justice, should this person be released? And we're seeing something that we see pretty much in other areas of, of, of civil society or politics or what have you. It's that there are these two different realities of what was going on in Ottawa that are being put forward. Mm -hmm. There's the reality, at least the one that I saw, and I drove the streets uh, my offices, you can see, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've got, you had quite a beautiful view of, of the action and even normally of downtown Ottawa there. I can, I'm actually quite jealous here being in my little uh, basement office of your view. Absolutely. We're, we're right downtown and uh, yeah, there was some, a, a little bit of additional delays when getting to work, but I, I could drive other than Wellington, I could drive pretty much every street downtown. There was at least one lane of traffic open on every major downtown core street. Uh, you know, say what you will about the, the flags that were there on the first day, you know, one or two flags that were really, really focused on by the media. But, you know, there were hundreds or thousands of Canadian flags every day. It was a, uh, a very peaceful and a very cordial protest for, for a very long time. That's one reality. The other reality is that this was a blockade, an occupation, that there was harassment going on. That We heard, you know, a member of parliament even say that there was a sexual assaults that were taking place when there's really no evidence to support that. There was the ongoing honking, which was was a, a, a concern, and there was a court order that, that addressed that. But when you get the prosecution that puts essentially a package of photos and pieces of evidence together, including statements from the civil lawsuit that's going on. You get this one reality that makes it look like it's some kind of hellscape that Tamara Leach was responsible for, for visiting upon the city of Ottawa. And so I think that to a certain degree, uh, that was the perception that was guiding the first bail judge. And uh, Justice Johnston, he normally sits in Ottawa. He's a little bit removed from the city of Ottawa and was able to, I think, you know, not necessarily tune into what the innuendo is in the media, but focus on what the evidence was before him and put it into the proper context and into the proper prioritization. Because again, you know, people can be released on any crime in Canada, no matter how heinous. So it's a consideration of all three of those factors. I think that the lawyer for Tamara Leach did a, did a good job of, of advancing the argument on a bail review and getting through some of those technicalities because it's not quite an appeal. There's some, you know, certain issues that are, are assumed to have been correct by the uh, by the bail judge. Other issues can be challenged. There's this concept of a change of circumstances. Uh, one change of circumstance that I didn't really see argued that much, which I was quite surprised, is that the protest isn't there anymore. Yeah, yeah, the convoy, the, the mischief ceases to exist. Right, exactly. And I know there's always the argument that it could come back, but I think that, that the landscape is very different right now is had the occupation, as they call it, been still there and Tamara Leach was released, more of an argument could have been made that, you know, uh, she could uh, give moral support or do something to uh, hinder the police in clearing out the area. But the area is cleared out. It's, it's, it's gone, right? So that's one change of circumstance from the time the bail hearing was first argued that I would argue uh, makes it such that it's even less of a risk of her reoffending and less of a concern to the public overall.
I want to talk about some of the broader aftermath aspects of this. I, I know you're representing the woman who was uh, trampled by the police, the mounted police in that famous video now. And again, I'm talking about this as someone who was pepper sprayed at the protest while doing my job as a journalist. There's a another journalist, a, a photographer with a, an agency, I, I can't recall the name of immediately, who was arrested, zip tied, thrown to the ground uh, by police, and, and he was later released. There have been a number of incidents like this that have come up. The only force, the only violence, in fact, I've heard of from anyone came from law enforcement on that weekend when this was all uh, basically dismantled by police. So uh, just either generally or or on behalf of your clients specifically here, what is the recourse available to people for this, even with the Emergencies Act having been in effect at that time? Well, the recourse available, you have more recourse if you've been charged with an offense. If you've been charged with an offense, you can you can apply to the court for remedy under the charter. Your charges can be thrown out. The court can make uh, determinations and speak about the police's conduct. Uh, the lack of recourse is what often exists when a person isn't charged. We saw people as even far back as the you know the gas can seizures that took place earlier on in the protest, where people were arrested, their property seized, and then they were released uh, hours later. So for those people, I know, uh, for example, the, the lady who was trampled by the horse, uh, Candace Cerro, she's being represented by Matthew Wolfson in my office, and uh, she uh, wasn't charged with anything, but she is going to be, through, through the assistance of Matt Wolfson, bringing a professional standards complaint. So that's a chance for the police to be formally disciplined f- for their conduct. We're going to be doing the same thing for... The lady Doreen that you may have seen who was a video recording on her phone, a police officer who walks up to her. He walks up to her and says, why are you pointing that in my face? Uh, Stop recording. And they start grilling her about where she's from. And then they start basically threatening her. Leave now or we're going to place you under arrest. And, And I've said this before, but it bears repeating. It's that the Emergency Act did give the police additional powers. But they didn't give the police, it didn't give the police unlimited powers. And that's how the police were conducting themselves that weekend, where basically whatever the individual officer or the police force as a whole this determined was necessary to do, you needed to do or face being arrested and charged with the same thing as Tamara Leach or anybody else who was there continuing to protest. Yeah, and one of the more concerning aspects was this reverse onus that police claimed. You needed to prove that you had a lawful purpose, not just to be in front of Parliament Hill, but even as as that video you just indicated, which we played on the show last week uh, shows, to just walk down the street uh, three or four blocks from Parliament Hill. You had to prove to police that you had a reason. And as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, it happens often, but detention has a very broad meaning. It isn't just about having handcuffs thrown on you. police are stopping you and questioning you, that is detainment, is it not? It is. I mean, there's psychological detention. Not not every interaction between the police and the public is a detention, but certainly where the police is taking some degree of control over you and basically threatening you to say, you know, do as I say or we're going to place you under arrest. I would make the argument that the police are, are detaining a person. And that- yeah, and for and for all the Emergencies Act's faults, and there are many, it didn't say you weren't allowed to film a public street. No, and and Trudeau even said when announcing the Emergency Act, he said, this is what it's not. And he said it is not uh, a restriction of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. (laughs) And you go into the the Emergency Act where they set out the so-called red zone, 
where they can secure an area. That area, the southern area of that area specified in the Emergency Act is Wellington Street. The Ottawa police decided that they were going to have an expanded red zone, and they treated the rest of that area, which wasn't specified in the Emergencies Act, as their full discretion to de determine it to be a red zone and treat people however they saw fit to treat them. Well, I'm glad you're on this, and you've been doing a great job on Twitter, and you have your uh, Twitter handle up on the screen there, David Anber, at, at demystifying a lot of this for the lay people out there like myself. So I appreciate it very much, uh, David Amber, lawyer in Toronto. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ottawa, thanks for having me. Anne. Sorry, I, I knew Ottawa. We were talking about you being in Ottawa. I, I'm, I'm from London, so they're all just like big cities that go into a, an amorphous blob to me. But uh, yes, Ottawa lawyer, David Amber. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Well, that was uh, very good. And again, I, I've had some great interactions with David, and he's been very quick to represent people that I think very much are in need of that. I mean, that interaction with that woman on Wellington Street, and again, I, I'm very pro-police. Police, police are, are oftentimes put in very difficult situations. They are very important to our society. And the problem is, when you see a situation like that, you're talking about a police officer that is obeying an order that is itself, I'm convinced, unlawful. And with all of the ambiguity out there, you were forced to give just so much discretion. I know I told this story right after I got back from Ottawa. <laughs> Bear with me because I think it's important here. The day after the protest was basically dismantled. So it was a Sunday and it was, I guess, two weeks ago from uh, the Sunday that's coming up. The time is all just like blending together here. But what happened was I was walking around and being questioned by police at, at various points. One of them was actually at the same point that video was taken. I think it was a different officer, though. I tried to walk east on Albert Street. Uh, police very quickly pounced on the sidewalk and told me I had to go back. I said, but I'm a journalist. They said, prove it. I said, I mean, there is no universal journalism credential in Canada. And they said, then turn around. And then I went to another police officer when I tried to find another way to get to the same place. And he said, okay, uh, can you show me proof that you're a journalist? And I said, well, there, there isn't proof. And he was surprised. He said, oh, I didn't know that. And I said, well, I could show you my Twitter profile. And I pulled up on my phone my Twitter profile that just proved that I was in Ottawa reporting. And he looked at it. He said, oh, you're even verified. Then he, he waved me right through. And then at another point, I tried to get into this secure area that was Wellington Street. And at one point, I, I had actually told them, I said, I'm a journalist. I had a letter from my editor that I was able to provide. And I had a phone number for my editor. I said, you can call him. He can prove that I'm here. Here's my ID. I was very transparent. They rang it up the flagpole to their boss, who rang it up the flagpole to his boss, who said, no, you need to have a, a parliamentary press gallery credential which again, has nothing to do with whether you're a journalist or not. That's just whether you have been accredited to work in a very narrow space in Canadian media. And then I went around to another entrance and I showed the letter, I showed my ID and he said, okay, and then I was in. And that was where I took that video of police taking a selfie with their drone and just had complete free reign over the streets. So all of this is to say that you had police that were not being given clear direction on this. They've been told by someone that, okay, we'll let journalists in just this once, but some of them were saying, okay, you need to be able to prove that. So why is the onus on me 
to prove that I'm a journalist. And by the way, that is in and of itself a category that is not particularly useful. If you look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which contrary to popular belief, still does exist. It's still on the books as a law in Canada. Even if people are using it as toilet paper, it still is there. And what happens is you look at it and section two has freedom of the press listed really as an example of freedom of expression. There's no special category of freedom for journalists. Freedom of the press is just one type of freedom of expression. So that's important. And obviously walking around, I was functionally using freedom of the press as my credential saying I have press freedom. But realistically, my right, my constitutional right to be there as a journalist is no more powerful than your constitutional right to be there as someone who wants to partake in free expression. And that includes freedom of protest. That includes freedom of assembly. So that's the great irony here. The very same section that protects journalists is also the same section that protects protest. And we oftentimes forget this. So when police were going out and threatening journalists and threatening protesters, at least they were being consistent. But the upshot of it is that people's constitutional rights were being infringed. But oh, Justin Trudeau said that was never going to happen. He said this was all about press freedom. This was all about free speech. It was always about the freedom to engage in a peaceful protest. Well, why then, after the vehicles were removed from Wellington Street, were people not able to assemble, as people do all throughout the year, on the front lawn of Parliament Hill? Why was that form of free assembly, which is a peaceful and lawful activity, why was that not allowed? There were all sorts of inconsistencies here. And if you watched my interview yesterday with Candace Bergen, the conservative leader, I asked, is there still going to be accountability? Can there even be accountability over the Emergencies Act without the emergency? And she said they're going to keep trying. Not long after that interview, what we saw happened was the NDP were trying to help the liberals and are succeeding in helping the liberals dilute what the post-Emergencies Act review process is going to look like of limiting the ability for this committee, this special committee that's going to investigate it, to actually do its work. So the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois can all day long talk about the need for oversight and transparency and accountability and all of that, but basically Justin Trudeau skates by. He skates by in the same way that the NDP backed this, and he whipped his Liberal votes, and even Liberals like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith were like, well, I don't like it, but, uh, well, you know, I want to keep my job, so I'm going to vote for it. And it was, it was remarkable how transparent he was about that. So all of this is to say that we have an issue right now where Justin Trudeau is once again infringing on your freedoms and all of us are just supposed to go along with it. All of us are supposed to go along with it. Now, as we wind down here, I want to talk about some of the big challenges that are coming up. And the reason I want to do this is because I've been getting bombarded with a lot of people asking me why I'm not covering a certain bill, which isn't actually a bill that is what people are saying it is. So I want to talk about this. The message is saying to tell senators about Bill C-10 and 11, C-36, and Bill S-233. C-10 and 11, this post says, this viral post says, is a media censorship bill that would eliminate alternative media. C-36 is a hate speech bill that includes pre-crime and the ability to be taken to court for something you haven't said. And Bill S-233, this thing says, is about guaranteed basic income and social credit score. 
Okay. Bills C-10 and C-36 do not exist. They are not in this parliament. They were bills that were introduced in the previous parliament. The liberals have said they're reintroducing them, and they might have actually reintroduced C-10, but I, I have to check on that. But they're going to have different numbers. And we covered those, we'll cover them, we'll continue to cover them. They are very dangerous. They aren't going to eliminate alternative media here. You have to be precise with language, otherwise you're going to get the fake news label slapped on you here. But what it would do is put the government's regulatory infrastructure over the internet, over online publishers. And the government has been back and forth all day long about what publisher means. At first, it was anyone that, you know, tweets or posts YouTube videos. And then it was, no, 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 we're not going to go against individuals. And then it was, well, what about online news sites? And the government said, well, we're, we're not going to go after online news sites. But the problem with that is that we go back to the age-old question of government deciding who real journalists are. Government has not recognized that True North is a media outlet in several fora. So they may just say, okay, we regulate True North. And again, it doesn't shut us down. I want to be careful here. It doesn't shut us down. But it would regulate us. And it would regulate other independent media, especially those government doesn't like. So that was the old Bill C-10. There will be a new one. Bill C-36, same thing. This is restoring Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. This one is fairly well described in the viral post. S-33, this is the one that's being misrepresented. This is a Senate bill, a Senate private member's bill, that would put forward a guaranteed basic income. As I understand it, it's not going to pass. It's not about a social credit score. There's a bunch of airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky language in there, but it's not a social credit score. So if we want to talk about what's happening here in Canadian society, we have to do it in a way that is rooted in facts. Otherwise, we don't actually get anywhere with it. So read the bill for yourself. Because I was getting, and I have been for days, bombarded with people asking, why are you not talking about the social credit bill? And I'm like, I mean, trust me, I, I'm immersed in news every day, but I miss stuff. And then I read the bill itself, and that's not what it does. Do I oppose it? Yes, because I oppose a guaranteed basic income. But that's not the social credit score. The problems we have are coming from the regulation of social media. And that's something that Justin Trudeau is doing we know is doing, regulating online speech and deputizing, that's really what they're doing, deputizing social media companies to be the enforcers of the government's speech code. And that's something that we know is happening and will continue to happen, but we are going to cover it here on True North as we always do. So thanks to all of you. Again, I enjoy hearing from you. I enjoy when people flag these things for me, but oftentimes all of the, why aren't you covering this? Why aren't you covering this? Why aren't you covering it stuff? More often than not, the answer is I have covered it and I can give people a link or alternatively, I'm looking into it. This one, it just because it, it's not as it was being presented. So uh, that's the upshot of that. We've got to end things here. My thanks to all of you for tuning into this live edition of the program. We've got some great stuff coming up for you next week, so don't miss that. And if you can support our work here, like we were talking about earlier with Franco Terrazano, we're not getting the CBC subsidy. We're not getting the $600 million journalism bailout. We are getting support from people that value the work that we do and that donate a few bucks a month, a few hundred dollars, whatever works for you, whatever makes sense. We appreciate your support very much. So thanks to all of you. We will talk to you soon here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.